Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, Shalom. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah. So today we're talking about Daniel. Let's start with our three key questions. How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? So who is Daniel? Well, the nice thing about this book is it's still in fairly chronological order. You know, we've just had Jeremiah, who is a prophet in Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and then Ezekiel, a prophet in Babylon. And now we have Daniel, who is taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, and his prophetic career is 70 years long. And we learn that he is a very young boy at the time that he's taken. Now, it's a little bit tricky because the book has been edited so many times, and I don't think the person who did the editing really was a contemporary because he gets the history mixed up sometimes. And one of the problems is he says in chapter one that it's the time of the siege. Well, Jerusalem was not sieged when the first group was taken captive. The first people that were taken were these bright, intelligent princes, the people that had a lot of aptitude, had a lot of potential to learn. And so they were taken to Babylon um, for this fabulous academic opportunity, education. However, they did make them eunuchs, it says. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's literal or not, but it it isn't all fun and games. It's not you just got a scholarship to Oxford, mm-hmm. uh, although Babylon was considered that in that day and age. But if we're talking about that first time period, it's probably about 606, 605 um, that he was taken, and the siege doesn't occur until 597 or 598. Do you remember when Lehi leaves? Right. Around 600? Yeah. So that's exactly, that's why I think Daniel is a young man when Nephi is a young man in Jerusalem. Um, Now, unlike some authors who have put the two together in stories, we have no evidence of that. But um, one was a prince and one was a wealthy kid, a wealthy dad's kid. So maybe, maybe. But he wasn't taken captive. Nephi was not in the same echelons that Daniel was. Um, nor Daniel's friends that go with him. But um, he's definitely the best and the brightest, so they may have thought this was too good to be true. The book of Daniel continues over this 70-year period, but it it goes out of order because they get the Medes after the Persians, and historically, it was opposite than that. So I can appreciate the fact that some editor hundreds of years later said, oh, no, 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 they got it wrong and, and and mixed those two times up. But on the whole, it's interesting. The book is written in two parts. You know, the first six chapters are these wonderful bedtime stories. Right. But I hope today to share some insights that are new that will make them, you realize that this is not just a child's story. These are fabulous stories that for our discipleships that we can learn from. And then the last half, Daniel is our apocalyptic hero. He is, um, some people call him the first apocalyptic writer. He writes about the end of times. It's not just the southern tribes. It's also the time before the Lord comes and the time before the second coming of the Mm. Lord. So any time of great destruction I see included in some of his prophecies. But it's interesting, whoever did the editing kept Daniel's visions in first person. So much of the book is in third person. And then his visions, as he's describing it, I, Daniel, 
It's in first person. And so some of the text is in Hebrew and some of it is in Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. So when the Jews come back from Babylon, they keep Aramaic as their mother tongue, even to the time of our Lord, who probably spoke Aramaic as his mother tongue. That's mm. even the even in the Gospel of Mark, we have the Aramaic words in, still included to remind us, you know, we're, our mother tongue's Aramaic here. It's all coming from the Babylonian captivity. And just as a reminder, Babylon is in modern day Iraq. It's on the east coast of the Tigris and Euphrates River. Um, and it's a long um, distance. You know, it's it's quite a quite a trek to get from Jerusalem across the Fertile Crescent, you know, all the way up to the Tigris and Euphrates and then all the way down. And we are told about these different kings that are serving at different times. And it appears that we have a prophet who is quite the statesman. We have a prophet who really is politically um, respected enough in the Babylonian and by the Medes and by the Persians to always have a right hand by the king. It's just amazing to me um, that he has this, um, but the Lord puts him in the right place at the right time and he is honored in that regard. What else about his background? I guess maybe his age. In the King James Version, I think it's what, verse three or four, it calls him a child. He says, do you want to read verse four? Yeah, uh, chapter one, verse four. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science. And such had ability in them to stand in the king's palace in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So that's Babylonian. That's their new language. They're going to have to be immersed in a new language. And it's describing all those people that were taken captive initially. And then we focus in on Daniel and his three wonderful Hebrew friends, but their names are very significant in what they mean and how they act is all very significant. And we'll talk about that when we get introduced to them. But I wanted to just um, give you this little brief overview first of the themes. I really see this book as saying God is active in the world. It's not just in Israel amongst the, the children of Israel. He is active amongst the world, the Persians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Greeks, you know, all the visions that he has of the future kingdoms of the world, God knows about. He's personally involved. He's not, as the some of the Puritans thought, a watchmaker who leaves the watch in the sand. Now, this is a very intimate God, and it's contrasted to the, God is contrasted to the things of the world. You know, he sets up these kings and allows them to serve. But of course, I think the book's also filled with spiritual heroes. That's yeah. always a great theme as well. What what themes did you see in the book? I saw a, a number of themes. What constantly came to mind was these par- the parallels with the sons of Mosiah, right? Mm. You know, that these two, now they had obviously a different path. So these are know, good when, kids all these along. These are good kids. These were good kids. And they're all probably along. younger. <laughs> yeah, probably. But this idea of you know being in a foreign land and serving, and then the Lord providing and creating opportunities for them, and them being patient and prepared for it was was some of those themes that I saw. 
Um, and then Revelation, as we go through kind of how Daniel created favor. Oh, isn't that interesting that yeah. the revelations are not clear. He has to really yeah, grapple with them. Yeah, it's studying it out and praying and on your knees and humility. and But the Lord answers him. It does. And like you said, Babylon at this time was the intellectual capital of the world, of the known world. And yet the king, as you know, dive into this, the king doesn't like their answers, right? For some of the problems he has. And Daniel, of course, with his process of revelation. Can do that. You know, solves that. And it's not just in Babylon. It's the same thing with the other kings, you know, yeah. in Persia and everywhere. Um, the, have, have you ever been to Berlin to see the old walls of Babylon? I'm not. Okay. Mm. You can get online now and just look it up. The walls of Babylon were taken down and take and are in the Berlin Museum. They are gorgeous blue tiles. And Babylon supposedly was a hunt. The city itself had a wall around it that was 100 feet thick mm. and 300 feet high. Wow. This was absolutely amazing. And the beautiful setup, um, you've probably heard of the Hanging Gardens. Right. Some people claim that that didn't come until the Persians took over, but maybe they were there with the Babylonians as well. But it supposedly was an absolutely exquisite city. And um, I've seen these tiles online as well as in person. And they, it, there's fabulous artwork to look at what the city looked like when Daniel arrived, what he could see. But when he arrived, um, he's probably young. So the King James called him a child. The NIV called him a youth. Most modern translations called him a youth. But the practice was in the day is if you are going to be an officer in the court, we want to make sure that the harem is always protected just for the king we don't want any hanky-panky going on with any of the people who are working in the palace. So we will make eunuchs of all the men who are going to live in the palace for their lives. And it says that Daniel was taken and uh, placed amongst the eunuchs. And so we assume that he and his comrades were made eunuchs. And this is why he lives there his whole life. And there's no other reference to any other family than, than his dear comrades that he has there. Obviously, that is um, something we'll find out more about in the next life. I don't want to say it's a for sure thing, but he finds favor immediately amongst this chief of the eunuchs. Verse 3, verse 3, his name is Ashpenaz. He's the master of the eunuchs. And that's where we start in chapter 1 with this yeah. idea of the food. The, the dietary code is right. the first so thing the, that's being affected. The word of wisdom. And I feel like the story is very well known. So what we want to look at is perhaps something that is a little bit less known. Um, these names, we've got both the Hebrew name and the um, Babylonian names. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to look at them because Daniel's name, I mentioned to you that in a few of the chapters we have Hebrew and in others we have Aramaic, but Daniel's name is Hebrew, and that's what we usually think of him as. Do you remember in the 12 tribes of Israel, one of them is Dan, and that meant judge? Right. But Daniel is judge of God, or God is judge. Hmm. And But his name is changed to Belshazzar, which is the guard of life. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names, and their Hebrew names we don't know much about. It's just the opposite of Daniel. And um, their Hebrew names mean... Yahweh is gracious, who belongs to God, and Yahweh has helped for Abednego. 
So they, the names go back and forth depending if you're in a Hebrew book or if you're in an Aramaic book. They use the names in both places. But I'm historically, the, any food that was offered in the palace, especially if it's at the king's table, is going to first be sacrificed to idols. The gods of the land at that time were Bel, Marduk, and Nabu. And so the the meats or whatever would have been sacrificed to these gods and then served on the king's table. So not only are, is he probably being asked to eat pork and way too much wine for a young boy and way too many foods that are against the law of Moses, um, he's also worrying about the idolatrous nature of eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. And this becomes a problem in the New Testament when the church goes to the Greeks. They say, we don't want to be eating this stuff, you know, right? that's been sacrificed. So it's it's a delicate situation there. But it sounds to me like they're supposed to be eating at the king's table for three years. They have this immersion for three years and then the final exam and they're going to determine who's who. So is he 10 when he starts, 11, 12, 13, 14? Um, probably no older than that because if you are going to make someone a eunuch, you usually do it prior to right. age 14. And you're an adult at 12 and a half. And so I presume that these young boys were very young. Hmm. Um, but whatever the age is, we know that Daniel says, Hey, can I have a break? I, I don't want to eat this stuff, you know? And I didn't ever think that wine was against the law of Moses because they used wine to purify their water. And we've talked in the past how they usually diluted it 10 parts water, one part wine for normal drinking. And then at the Passover or sometime when you wanted something very fancy and special in Israel, you would dilute your water three times with water, your wine, excuse me, three parts water to one part wine. That's the fancy stuff. But it sounds like in Babylon, it's a, probably a much stronger drink. And that's one reason why he's opposing it. Interestingly, at the same time that Daniel is in Babylon, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. And I went back and read Jeremiah 35 verse 8, where he says that we nor our wives or our sons and our daughters have ever drunk wine. So I think they had pure enough water sources in that time that they are not drinking wine. And so when we see Daniel and his friends saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, no, 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 give us 10 days, just 10 days, and let's just look at each other's countenance. And, you know, as a nurse, I've done these studies on what alcohol does to children. And I'm not talking about the French who have, you know, one glass of wine with the dinner, but... Um, a very, very, very small glass for their 12-year-olds. But i it's so dangerous for the brain. And I can just imagine all these kids with hangovers if, they've, if they are going through their growth spurt and thirsty and, and drinking and eating this kind of food. So in King James, it says, let us have 10 days with the pulse. And you can look at your footnote and see that it's... It's, it's usually vegetables in the other translations, but it's also the word is grain as well, grain or vegetables. So it's, to me, it's a vegetarian diet. He says, give us, let me have some good, clean water and, and, and this, and we'll give it a try. And you know the end of the story. Yeah, let me read verse 17 for that. Thanks. Yeah, as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
That matters yeah. later, right? Yeah, yeah. They they come out conquerors and they change the diet for all the young men to follow along the example of these guys by small and simple things. Perceive it that's great. You know, Leviticus chapter eleven gives this kosher law, and the young men recite it, and it makes an enormous difference to everybody. It's a blessing to everybody. It's just fabulous. Really is. I, I think I've had a similar experience with you know holding to your dietary laws. When I was living in England, of course, they love their tea and coffee yes. and alcohol, right? <laughs> and I just remember being with some some friends at university and it's like, hey, you know, just being very polite and kind and thoughtful. It's like, hey, do you want something to drink? Can I buy you a drink? I'm like, no, I don't. I don't drink. And like, oh, do you want some coffee instead? I'm like, I don't drink coffee. It's like, how about tea? I'm like, I don't drink. She's like, well, what do you drink? And then, and uh, of course, you go into the reasons why, you yeah. know, very similar to Daniel. Yeah. And we, we believe our bodies are gifts from God. We want to take care of them. And it's a lot more than just coffee, tea, and alcohol that yeah. we want to avoid. You know, there's a lot we can do to keep our bodies healthy. But the word of wisdom and just living it has probably led to more missionary opportunities than than just about any other principle. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Well, you up. stand apart, yeah, especially in your college years, yeah. John. <laughs> that's yeah, that's great. True. Good for you. But I found that interesting that, that in all matters of wisdom, understanding, verse 20, yeah. that he found these four young boys 10 times better. 10 times better, it says in verse 20. All the magicians and astrologers that yeah. were in and all his realm. And I assume that this is just a, a vernacular, an exaggeration of good thing, but I bet it's, I bet it was true. Yeah. Yeah. That these kids were as sharp as can be. And I think the Lord put the right people in the right place yeah. at the right time that he knew the end from the beginning. And he chose to put these valiant, bright, capable. And I feel the same way about so many of my students and actually some of my children. I feel like they have a special mission and the Lord has given them these gifts so that they can magnify their calling. Mm. I presume the case is with all of us, though. Right? Yeah. 21 is beautiful. It says he, he serves all the way through Cyrus, 70 years. Yeah. So he starts very young and he serves till he's an old man. Do you want to try? Should we start chapter two? Let's start chapter two. So Daniel is going to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's very apocalyptic dream. I think this is sort of setting the stage for Daniel's apocalyptic dreams that start in chapter seven. But it's sort of interesting. The King James says, I, I didn't. I don't, I'm not sure what the dream was. You know, it's, it's, it's gone from me, but that's not what all the other translations say. And they, I went back to the Hebrew. He said, I know exactly what it was. And I have decided to test you on this. You know, it, it has not left my memory. It, I, I'm really glad to have so, those so the other king, translations. Yeah. So, so the king has had his vision and the magicians and astrologers can't solve it. Well, and that's it, because he says, tell me my dream first. Right. And so so he has this dream. He's mm -hmm, troubling him, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not unlike actually Joseph of Egypt, right? Oh, Joseph of Egypt. Exactly. And then, well, a little different here because Nebuchadnezzar says he doesn't tell the dream. And yeah. to test uh -huh, it, he's, uh -huh. he does a scientific experiment, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> um, tell me what my dream is to see if you actually have this spirit prop. And then did you notice that Daniel takes time? Says, he does. Give me some time. I, I need to go before the Lord. And he talks with and his brother. And the brethren. miracle is in the timing that the yeah. Lord gives it to him that night. Well, the miracle's in the answering too, because what a dream. Wow. Yeah. His ability to retell these dreams um, really validates his interpretation. Mm -hmm. he, he has to believe the interpretation because he came up with a dream. And furthermore, of course, I believe that, you know, God is totally involved in this because it's the history of 
the Israelites as well as the history of the Babylonians. But we've got a good explanation of the dream there in chapter two. I don't think we, when Daniel explains the dream, I think we can just read it, read it right yeah. out and get it. We can move on. But it's interesting that um, Daniel has, um, is praying at night to receive this answer. And I remember um, reading years ago um, a conference report, and this was decades ago, but it was by President Harold B. Lee. And he said, like Daniel, by faith in God, you can be attuned to the infinite. In your hour of need, the solution of problems too great for your human strength or intelligence. Mm. I really have found this to be a blessing. I, it doesn't mean I am not studying my heart and mind out and I'm working as hard as I can, but my very best is nothing unless I link it up with the Lord. I feel that anytime you can have the Lord speaking through you, you'll have it see miracles happening. So I think even though presently is 50 years ago, it's still very applicable to read yeah. what he said. I like that a lot. I, th I think that's that's been my experience too. I also find that Daniel is so good about giving God credit. He says, you're right. This is too hard to do, but God knows. that." In chapter 2, verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men or the astrologers, the magicians or the soothsayers show unto the king, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth the secrets. And there yeah. he goes, you know. 27 and 28, he continues on. These are going to be the latter days. I think or the, it's important to understand when he talks about latter days, it doesn't mean our latter days. Let's let him define his words. And when we see the vision, it's the latter days of Babylon. You know, it's the destruction of Babylon. So it's not necessarily the latter days of the world, at least this vision, but let's allow Daniel to use words differently than how we define them in the 21st century. That makes a lot of sense, but this is also the same chapter with, uh, you know, rough stone rolling, right? Oh, let's jump down there. So we've got the gold head with Nebuchadnezzar. We've got the silver arms and breast with probably the Medes and the brass belly with the Alexander the Great. You know, he he gives a lot of the interpretation there. I don't know if there's probably multiple levels of interpretation. This is just one of them. There's always this debate about exactly how it's going to be interpreted with the clay and iron toes, these smaller kingdoms, possibly from the Roman Empire. But let's go down to that stone. Is that verse 34? Do you want to read that? Uh, 34, 35, chapter 2? Yes, 34. 34. Great. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like a chaff of the summer uh, the threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Yeah. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 44 before the commentary. And in the days of these Kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. That mm. was quoted by our own prophet yeah. in conference, October 2019. And we have so many statements by the prophet saying this kingdom is the restoration. This kingdom is what was 
you know, by paraphrasing Daniel. In fact, let's just open up the Doctrine and Covenants here. Um, this is right at the beginning, October of 1831. So the church is a barely a year and a half old. And in section 65, it reads, he's, I think he's paraphrasing this prophecy. He says, the keys of the kingdom of God is committed unto man on earth. And from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth as a stone, which was hewn from the mountain without hand. So it's using it a little bit differently. And it shall roll forth unto, till it hath filled the whole earth. And then he says, prepare ye for the supper of the lamb, make ready for the bridegroom. And Joseph is actually translating Matthew chapter six here. Mm. So it fits right into our savior's prophesying of this and the virgins. And, um, and then of course the gospel of, uh, I mean, not the gospel, John's in the book of revelation by John, he says in chapter 19, that the bridegroom will come as soon as the bride is prepared. So as soon as the church is ready, the Savior can return. And I see section 65 is combining the prophecy of Daniel and that prophecy of John the Revelator. But I found so many quotations by other prophets, Spencer W. Kimball and Joseph Smith, that this is what this really is talking about and that we need to appreciate the, magnim the importance of the restoration that it was prophesied this long ago by Daniel. It really is a remarkable prophecy about the latter days in, in lens of the old Testament. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's move on to chapter three, shall we? Yeah. I think um, chapter three is our only chapter that doesn't have Daniel in it. It's his right. companions. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are in the fiery furnace. And this problem of this pagan statue that's going to be built, they're supposed to fall down and worship it, if we know the story. And I guess chapter 3, verse 15, the king is boasting, who is the, that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? You know, But when you read the size of this statue uh, and translate it, it's, it's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide or 27 meters high, you know, 2.7 meters wide. It, it, it's enormous. But I guess if you're building a city with walls of 300, you know, if you're able to build the, the size that they are, they, they figured out the mechanics and the art, the engineering on how to do these kind of things. But um, why don't we start with um, verse 16 to 18? Sure. So the King James Version 16 to 18, chapter yeah. 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of the hand, O king. Yeah. And but here, if not, right? Let me go back. Let me go back okay. and just read the NIV of that. It's a little bit harder to under, easier to understand. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, because if we're thrown into the blazing fiery furnace, the God that we serve will be able to deliver it from us. Yeah. And we will serve, and he will deliver us, and we will serve him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. I'm sorry. To 18. You. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Yeah. But if not became the topic of one of our conference reports in the last decade. Uh, but if not, actually, I guess it was even older than that, isn't it? But I, my heart says we um, have to have faith to live, and we have to have faith to die. And as... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego use their faith to live. The prophet Abinadi 
exerted his faith, and he was burned by the flames of the fire. And his faith was that he could finish testifying what needed to be said. I feel like the outcome does not mean the level of faith. It's what the Lord needs to have happen and what he's trying to teach and who needs to be held responsible. And these young men's mission in life had not been completed. So they turned it up seven times hotter, it says, which I think is an idiom for as hot as it can go. You know, seven times as whole or complete. So as hot as it can go. These, um, And yet there's no smell of smoke. You know, those of us that go backpacking and build a fire occasionally um, know what the smell of smoke can do to your clothes. Nothing is singed. No hair, nothing. Well, the flame was so hot in 22, it mentions that it, took the men who put them in the mm -hmm. furnace. Yeah. That's how yeah. hot it was. Yeah. And it's even amazing to me. I mean, it lets you know the level of engineering and technology that these engineers had come to. But according to Hugh Nibley, 600 BC, so the time when the Babylonian is, uh, empire is at its, at its peak, um, was some of the most advanced times until the modern industrial yeah. revolution. 600 BC was really an enormous um, apex in industrialization of the world. Chapter four, um, we're now back into first person and King Nebuchadnezzar again has another dream of this giant tree. And, mm -hmm. you know, Daniel's prophecy of this one is so amazing that King Nebuchadnezzar accepts it because he, he prophesies that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go mad. He's going to go crazy and turn into an animal in his behaviors and lose his place on the throne. Um, but King Nebuchadnezzar confesses and says, I believe that God is a high God. This is verse two and three. God did not mean that he was ready, though, to obey or follow him. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar does not follow God. Um, and hence, we need the vision that Jehovah is going to come to all the nations, which is chapter five. And it sounds to me like we're skipping over three of the kings that he also that fit in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. But Daniel 5 just moves ahead to now we're at about 550 BC. So Daniel has probably been in Babylon for 50 years. So he's now an older man and Belshazzar served until 539 BC. So he's, he's well probably over 60 years old, Daniel the prophet now, as we step into chapter 5. And it sounds um, historically like Belshazzar is not the sole king. He's actually the regent king, and his father is serving in a different location. And um, his brothers and other people served during the time, but he is still in Babylon. So Belshazzar is in Babylon serving while the other regent kings or co-regent kings, his dad and his others, were serving in other large places across the Babylonian empire, which is the largest empire of the ancient world up to this point. You know, it's double the size of the Assyrian empire, but it's not as large as what will become the Roman empire. But the crazy thing is Belshazzar has the audacity to take out these gold vessels from the, that had been part of the Judaic temple of Solomon's temple and uses them at an idolatrous feast. The Lord brings this to an end really fast. And, so it's probably towards the end of his life um, because he's gone very soon after. So probably closer to 539 BC. Um, 
Did you want to read any of that? Um, verse 17, when Daniel answers the king, yeah, should we let's, start there? Let's read 17. Uh, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then he goes on and says, you have not humbled yourself. Yeah. You know, you, you really, and then the words are written there in the plural Aramaic. It's this riddle on the wall. Um, and it, fortunately, the text tells us what it means. Your time is up. You're found wanting. And it's this play on words. I've been told that there's a division in the kingdom um, that's going to come to pass. And it's already divided somewhat because his father is one king and he's the other. Um but that's the tragedy there. And it sounds like in verse 30 that in order to take the city, um, Cyrus or Darius, the, anyway, whoever, the, the text gets it mixed up, as I said, the, right. the Medes and the Babylonians are wrong, but they divert the water source under the wall and the soldiers are able to wade through this canal bed into the city one night, during one night and they mm. take it over. It's just gone like that. It's just one day. I mean, just there's like so that. many parallels here. We, one is, you know, this is the world. The, the Babylon is used as a, you know, symbol of the worldliness the world. or materialism. And, and yet the, the refrain is the same. This repeated over and over again in Israel, which is pride and idolatry, you know, prosperity pride just does comes that. before the fall. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. And yet we have this stalwart example of a valiant a prophet just, continuing to preach and preach and preach. And he does not hide from saying the hard things. And that, that stood out to me isn't through, it through the entire book, right? From a so young child. Courageous. Of, his faith really bolstered his courage. I mean, threat of death, basically all from oh, the very beginning, every time, every yep. time, including now. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Just so courageous. And he's, he's consistently rewarded with and that. Then the last story that we have is the, the next king comes in and Daniel has to, Daniel's God wants to let the next king know who's God. And that's where we get the story of the lion's den. But the story of Darius and Daniel um, probably occurred earlier. I don't, I don't know for sure, but um I want to read a different translation here. This is actually an Aramaic Bible that I found. Okay. So it's the language of the Babylonians in chapter 6, verse 2. The three had authority higher than they, and Daniel was one of them, so that the generals of the army would be given an account to them. They could not be annoying to the king. So it sounds to me like he is now acting as a general of the military during this takeover. And it, usually when we have businesses taken over, you know, you replace the CEO, you replace the attorney, you replace the head honchos in the new company with your own people. But they, Daniel was able to be this prophetic statesman over and over. It's fabulous. Um, and I feel like one of the themes that I didn't say at the beginning is Daniel's prayers really help him face the trials because it says that not only is Daniel praying all night in the lion's den, but the king is as well. This is, this Darius. is amazing to me because, you know, I'm just reading verses one and two, how he sets us up. Darius, the conquering king, right, of Babylon, mm -hmm. this impenetrable fortress, mm -hmm. right? The height of intellectualism and art at the time. Darius is the one that conquers it. And he has 120 princes and Daniel's in charge of them all. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I came and conquered you and... Daniel just had such an impression on the king that 
You know, it's going to be That's wonderful amazing. to meet him someday. He sounds yeah. like such a remarkable person. It's yeah. just it's fabulous. Amazing. And, you know, we we finish up chapter six with, um, do you want to read, I don't know, 16 is good too. Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And then that's when the king fasts and prays all night. I thought, oh yeah, fasting all night. That's not that hard. So I'm, I'm sure the prayers were right. uh, very sincere. But in verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver you out of the lions? You know, then the answer is resounding, of course. But that is the end of the six stories. And the rest of the whole book are these beautiful apocalyptic visions with these multiple level of interpretations. We have the Savior quoting one of them. We have Joseph giving us interpretation on many. And we have a lot of other people trying to figure out what Daniel's text meant. The apocalypse, remember the book of Revelation is also called the apocalypse and um, end of times, destruction. But this whole genre, this whole literature, apocalyptic literature is, is formulated consistently after these stories of Daniel, the forces of good and evil fighting, clashing, and good conquerors at the last days. It's interesting, though, as we look at um, the very beginning of chapter 7, these four great beasts, Joseph is very clear to say these are not the same as the book of Revelation. Do these not are not the four horsemen. Yes. Right. He said they're images. It's translated wrong. They're images. And I found several sermons. Here's one from April 8th, 1843, where Joseph's taught in Nauvoo. The angel interpreted the vision to Daniel, but we find by the interpretation that the figures of the beast had no allusion to the kingdom of God. We see that these beasts are spoken of represent the kingdoms of the world. Remember, they're all carnivores. They're right. bears, lions, you know, they're, they're carnivores. These are kingdoms of the world and the inhabitations thereof. And they were beastly, abominable characters. They were murderers and corrupt and carnivores and brutal in their dispositions. And later on, Joseph also stated, Daniel did not seem an actual lion or a bear. Just these images of these future, um, of these figures and describe them in those words. The translation should have been rendered image again. You know, so he repeats this over and over again. But it's interesting as we look at these beasts, they're not heavenly, they're destroyers. But in verse um, five, the bear is eating these ribs or hanging out. You know, many people have interpreted that as the Medes and the Persians are going to come in and take over. And um, in verse 7, the fourth beast is interpreted often as the Roman Empire that's coming, and the three little horns as an antichrist. But fortunately, Daniel often asks, what does this mean? And he's given an interpretation. So that's very helpful. Do you want to look at verse 9, chapter 7, yeah. verse 9? I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. It's in the restoration that we learn who the Ancient of Days is. It's not until section 116 and section 138 that we learn the Ancient of Days is Adam. You know, this is, these are all Adam on Diamond prophecies. When Adam will come again and in verse 13 to 17, we see Jesus is coming and in the clouds and his kingdom will be prepared for him in the second coming. But 
he says, um, do you want to read third? I'll just, I'll just paraphrase part of it here. I saw one like unto the son of man, a man came in the clouds of heaven and came in the ancient of days and brought with me before him. And, and then this is verse 14. And there was given him dominion and glory in the kingdom and all people and nations and language should serve him. Uh, well, this is clearly a prophecy of the Messiah. And so when Jesus is in his trial, in the accounts that both Matthew and Mark share, Jesus quotes this verse when they ask him who he is. And he says that he is the son of man and that he will come with clouds in the heaven. And that's when they say, crucify him, blasphemy, blasphemy. He said it as clear as can be. They did not know Christ would be the suffering servant of Isaiah, but they assumed the Messiah would be this man coming in the clouds. And Jesus identifies himself that way, and they refuse to accept Jesus as their Messiah. So that is a beautiful phrase there. Joseph, excuse me, Jesus also quotes Psalm 110 in the same prophecy there. But um, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 are, are part of that. And his eighth vision has another large beast. This one's a ram and a he-goat. And they describe something that sounds like Alexander the Great. Because um, he dies in the height of his power. And we even get a little bit of interpretation that sounds like Antiochus IV might be involved there. He was the awful, awful, awful Greek leader who hated the Jews, bitterly um, attacked them. In fact, he even, if you can believe it, he took a pig and put it on the altar in the temple and sacrificed it to Zeus just out of, you know, to show his fury with the Mosaic law. And so poor Daniel just cries out and says, how long? And we get some numbers, um, you know, 2,300 days. And it's really important, I think, that we don't read too much into the message and allow it to Joseph says, don't try to figure it out. And I think the reason why Joseph said that is because it, during Joseph's day and age, there were a group of Christians in his area, so west of the Appalachians, who felt very strongly that Daniel's prophecies were going to be fulfilled right then in the 1840s. And they all gathered together and expected the exact day the Lord to come. Well, he didn't come. So he said, oh, let me do my math again. And he pushed it out to 1844. And they all gathered together. They had 20, over 20,000 gathered together, you know, at a time when your largest cities are, are a tenth of that size, you know, at least west of the Appalachians, the largest cities were very small. And um, that great disappointment became the beginning of the Seventh-day Adventist church. They call it the great disappointment when the Savior did not come when they were expecting him. But we believe that um, God will tell us through our prophets in words and understanding to our ability. And we have to choose to follow, but we don't have to choose how to interpret it. The Lord will give us that. And did you notice who gives, <clears throat> did you did notice it? who gives Daniel the interpretation? It's angel Gabriel. Right. That's, Isn't that's that fabulous? Me. And do you remember who Gabriel is in the restoration? Joseph uh, is told. Noah. It's Noah. You're yeah. right. You're right. John, you've been doing your homework. <laughs> I also think it's sweet that <clears throat> Daniel comes to Gabriel at the hour of prayer, which mm -hmm. is when the incense is being lit in the afternoon at the temple, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That's right when Zacharias has angel Gabriel come to him. 
Yeah. You know, something you said earlier about Daniel being kind of this prophet of the apocalypse, kind mm-hmm. of the first mm-hmm. and follow, and then Gabriel being Noah, mm-hmm. this apocalypse, right? That happens <gasps> with that. Oh. And Daniel seeing the fall of Israel with the Babylonian takeover as a young boy. And Noah had to see the fall. Yeah. All and then seeing the Abraham. fall of Babylon on top of that, this impenetrable city, the height of civilization. Uh, you know, so Daniel have see, has seen it, has seen it with his own he eyes. He and Noah shared a lot as yeah. well. So we've got Joseph, of the dreamer of Egypt. Yeah. And there's a lot of parallels to our dear Daniel, the prophet. Well, yeah. we've got three more um chapters to go, but I think the interpretation of these are um, nice that Gabriel is able to give them and we can see the success of kings and the wars and these conflicts, but we do hear about the second coming in chapter 11 and 12. And we believe that, um, I'm just going to jump ahead because it's such a happy time with the restoration of the millennium and the hope of a return that comes. In chapter 12, verse 13, Michael delivers Israel, and we learn about the two resurrections, that the wise will know the times. Mm. So if we follow the prophet, we'll be taught the times. And this symbolic number, 1,290 days, is three and a half years. And it's symbolized in the end of the world. It's also used as the sign of Jonah, this three years that we'll talk about in a few weeks, um, for the Lord's death and his time in the spirit world as well. But Joseph Smith saw that the Lord had not given the key for interpreting the timing of this vision, and he really thought speculation was pointless. So I don't want to go into more of the details, um, but it does end on this very optimistic note that the restoration is going to come and that the second coming will come and our Savior will rule and reign on mm. the earth. Yeah, it's interesting. Of all this apocalyptic nature and this death and destruction, there's hope, right? Yes. And that, that, is, that is absolutely the message. And that is our faith. And even in times of destruction, we can have hope in our Savior. No matter how bad it gets, we know the end is in our Lord and God. And He will. He, everything He does is for our own good. Yeah. Nice to be with you, John. Have a good day. Bye-bye.